Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us. A journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. You're going to do it, aren't you? What? You, you just have that look like you're going to do something. I was watching you watch me because I it was interesting to see the gleam in your eye of, I can't wait to see what bit Tyler does to open us up for this episode. So while you were watching me watch you, mm-hmm. watch me watch you, Yeah, you did not come up with a bit. Oh, I got a bit. Oh. I was just enjoying watching you watch me watch you watch me. Waiting for the bit. Waiting for the is bit. Is this the bit? No, this is actually not the bit. I'm just enjoying this process a little bit more. You want me to get into the bit? You can get into the bit. All right, here we go. Welcome, everybody. To Hannah's going to talk about an old white guy for an hour and a half. Tyler's going to sit on the couch and take a shot of whiskey. Hopefully just an hour. <laughs> this is a two-parter. We yeah, don't this need is definitely three be hours. Hannah, I don't think I've seen an outline this long before. And... It's only the first half of this dude. Yes. I get very into my note-taking, Tyler. I need to write everything down that I'm going to say. Otherwise, I'll forget You're it. literally just going to read a I'm script. I'm just going to read this script, okay? okay? All right. That's what's going to happen. Here we go. I'm going to take a shot. And as soon as I'm, as soon as you all hear the... Guys, I'm not joking. We have seven pages of shit to get through. <laughs> I need to stop like hindering us from going because we got to get going. We got to get going. On Frank Herbert, the author of Dune... This guy lived a life, apparently. I'm going to take a shot. As soon as I slam this thing down, Hannah's going to go. So it was it was fun to have a podcast. It's now Hannah's. <laughs> so the reason this is all me is because Tyler has read nothing about Frank oh. Herbert. Oh. Oh. That shot did not go down easy. Woo! All right. So Tyler's going to hop in in the next episode because he really likes what Frank Herbert is most famous for writing, which yep. is the incredible, huge world that is dune dune which sounds pretty tight but i uh was reading the biography instead these past couple of weeks uh it's called dreamer of dune the biography of frank herbert and it's written by his son brian herbert who is also an author but i think that's why this book is so long and detailed is because brian actually grew up with him so he knows all of the stories yeah uh i know that brian and his little brother did have a, a bit of a, a hard relationship with his dad. Yeah, not an easy person <clears throat> to live with. So I'm interested to see, man, that whiskey got to me. I'm interested to see what um, what comes out of this book because I did only read Dune. So all I've got are my psychoanalysis notes of why uh, Frank Herbert was gay uh, in in from from dude. Are you shitting me right now? No, not at all. Not <laughs> oh at all. Oh my god! I know that that's the expectation nowadays with how I how I how we do people, author. But no, I I don't think that at all. Okay, good. At I'm like, wait, yet. that is not what I got from this biography. Yeah. <laughs> at the end, it's just also he was gay. Yes. That's the very last sentence. And he had a spanking fetish. You know, <laughs> that's what we come to expect from yeah. our authors. Yep. Uh, okay. Lovecraft well, and Lewis I, set us up hard. I think you're gonna find his life interesting then. Because so much of it went into the formation of Dune. So. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Let's hear it. 
Frank Herbert was born on October 8th, 1920 in Tacoma, Washington. That's another reason I like him. All of this takes place on the West Coast, specifically the Pacific Northwest a lot of the time, which yeah. is very special to us based here in the Portland metro area. Hell yeah. Um, his dad was also Frank Herbert. And he was he, Frank Herbert Jr.? Well, he was like Frank Herbert III because his dad was known as F.H. because he had an uncle named Frank in the family too. So just a lot of freaking Frank Herberts. Uh anyway. Uh oh. Uh oh. I'm seeing something happening. Sorry. I read I read ahead. <laughs> Don't read ahead. Uh so F H and uh Frank's mom. Come on, Eileen. Dang it. We can't have people named Eileen on this podcast. FH and his wife Eileen were living in Tacoma at the time, but they visited family in Burley at every opportunity. And Burley was like a former like socialist commune um, that was founded in 1898 by the Cooperative Brotherhood, was like which was like the splinter group of the Social Democracy of America. It only lasted about 15 years because communes don't really last that long before it fell apart. Chad. Yeah, sorry, Chaz. Chaz. Uh, but the Herberts stayed in that area, um, so they were always going up there, and it was just kind of like a kitschy little hippie area. Um, and so his dad cycled through a lot of careers. He was one of those people who, I think he like tried really hard sometimes, but he just wasn't good at holding down a job. Uh, he operated a bus line at one point. Then he was an ele- electrical equipment salesman. Then a car salesman. And then a motorcycle patrolman for the recently created Washington State Patrol. Um, and so Frank had kind of like a all over the place childhood. Um, he spent a lot of time like independently doing stuff. Um, his dad was also very outdoorsy and would take him camping and fishing and hunting and all that stuff. But also there was not a lot of supervision sometimes. Mm. Uh, at two and a half years old, Frank was attacked by a dog and almost blinded. What? And he spent the rest of his life with a scar over his eye. So I'm sure that Oh my gosh, really he had cool. a scar over his right eye. This guy sounds so cool. He's, yeah. At two and a half years old, he's already tougher than us. He's walking around like a little baby with a, like a, he's just like, I'm, I'm Frank the Third, Frank Herbert the Third, and everyone's like, "Man, where'd this child grow up? He's got like the coolest backstory." Right by age five, he's gonna have like a hook for a hand and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and he just like he, they just automatically give him a ship, just a boat to to. It's like you get it, you got the hook, you got hey, the scar. We're gonna get to the boats later on. Oh. Yeah. Um. So as a kid, uh. Brian wrote of his father, everything interested him. He could read most of the newspaper by the time he was five. He loved puzzles. He was good with numbers. Uh, He went on all sorts of trips with his dad and uncles outdoors. Um, And then at age 10, he saved enough money for a Kodak box camera with a flash attachment and started taking pictures of all the outdoorsy family events they went to. He got really into photography as a teenager and set up a dark room in the basement. And so this would be like a lifelong passion for him was photography. I always find it interesting when when kids do things with basements that I didn't ever think was possible. To do with your basement. Yeah. Like for me, a basement is, oh, this is where I'm going to go play video games and probably watch things I shouldn't watch when my parents are asleep. He's like, oh, I'm going to start a dark room. Have all sorts of chemicals and stuff. Wait, that's not his voice. He's obviously a badass because he's got a scar in his right hand. I'm going to set up a, a dark room, father. All right, Frank. Yes, that you was scare his the voice shit out 12. of me so you can do, go do whatever you want. Thanks, Dad. His voice stopped being squeaky really early yeah, in life. Yeah. Um, 
He also had a large extended family living in the area, so he spent a lot of time with aunts, uncles, and cousins, including his crazy Irish Catholic aunts on his mom's side who tried to force religion on him. Uh, He later referred to it as attempted brainwashing. Mm -hmm. Um, And they actually ended up the models for the Benny Gesserit, I think that's how you say it, uh, sisterhood in Dune. Um, And Brian was explaining that's sort of why Gesserit sounds similar to Jesuit. Yep. See? You've got stuff to contribute. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, yep, like I know it. A- anybody who asked me anything further on him, I'd be like, ah, I don't know. No, I was reading no, that. But, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Jesuit, yeah, Jesuit. I, 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 I knew that he had had to deal with the Jesuit upbringing, uh, and that was about all of his um, exposure to religion. Yeah, so his dad, FH, was agnostic and really like clashed with his uh, sister-in-laws a mm-hmm. lot over this. Um but despite not wanting to actually like be religious, it seemed like Frank was really interested in learning about religions. Um, one that he got really into was Zen Buddhism. Uh, he also knew several Coast Salish Indians and would come to learn about their religious beliefs. Um, and that ended up influencing a lot of um, one of his only, actually his only non-science fiction book, Soul Catcher, which would be written way later. But mm. he grew up, I mean, growing up in that part of Washington, there are a lot of tribes over there. So it's not totally surprising that he would interact with them a lot gotcha uh in 1928 his family moved to burley and set up a small farm with a cow chickens and pigs um and i guess he uh had a very confident proclamation that he wanted to be an author when he was eight it was the morning of his birthday he climbed on top of the table and announced to his family i want to be a author not an author a author a author a author (laughs) So grammar hey, needs listen, some work. Dumbass. Here's your first critique. <laughs> An author. An. An. Uh, <laughs> but he followed through. That morning, he wrote his first short story Damn. about a character lost in the jungle who had to find his way back to camp. So. Good lord. Yeah, and I guess his mom would like keep a lot of because he wrote like a lot as a child. Uh, and she would keep some of the better stuff and like save and it. Some of the better stuff. Some of the better this stuff. This one's not worth keeping. <laughs> she, you know, she probably had good taste. Um, and a lot of his childhood writing also involved adventurous tales of law enforcement that he overheard from his dad working for the state patrol. Oh, so he had all sorts of material coming at him. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, his dad and his mom were on again, off again alcoholics. We're not going to say her name because it's too distracting. Come on, Eileen. Have uh, another drink with me. Right. Because exactly. we're alcoholics. We're ruining everything. That was well done, actually. Thank you. That's probably what they sounded like. <laughs> so that was part of the reason he had to become so independent so young because his parents were just plastered all the time. Um, for his ninth birthday, he got a rowboat. See? Got the boat a few uh-huh. years late. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, and the next summer, he made a solo trip from Burley all the way to the San Juan Islands, which was more than 200 miles round trip. Good Lord, man. Like, kids, nine-year-olds these days aren't even allowed to walk to the bus stop alone. Like, They're not even allowed on the internet without parental supervision. <laughs> I mean, like, this kid's, this kid's scary. This kid He's is scary. He's got a scar. He's just smoking a cigarette as he rows out to the San Juan <laughs> I'm going to go write a book. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to write a book. <laughs> Very determined. <laughs> um, and then in 1931, so what is he? What year is this now? He would be 11 at that point. In 1931, uh, his dad quit the patrol and they moved 
to a town in between Tacoma and Seattle, uh, FH, Eileen. Come on! And another couple started a dance hall. Um, This was during the Prohibition era, and the speakeasy illegally served alcohol, which made it an instant success. I'm sorry. They started a dance hall? Yeah. like That was like a thing that you could just start? Like you just- They got a building, and they got some illegal booze, and they were like, come on, people, let's have a good time. During Prohibition. Come on, Alita! We gotta start a dance hall! This is like 60, 50 years too early, I think. Uh, but I, that's an interesting, like who, I don't know. Maybe that's like the equivalent of um, like, hey, let's start a podcast. Maybe it is, except illegal. What do you say, darling? Let's go down to the, to the Tillamook uh, <laughs> district and start a dance hall. Huh? Dance hall. Yeah. Uh, it was <laughs> kind of ironic because when he was still with the state patrol, he would take his wife along on speakeasy raids with him, and they, like, stole bottles from the bars that they were busting up, and she would, like, sneak them under her coat and then take them home. So this dude's kind of bad. His dad and mom are not great role they're models. They're kind <laughs> of the worst. And they're bad at business. So during the first year, they got in a bad fight with their par- business partners, and FH quit, um, and then he went to, like, turn his full attention to a gas station he had also started. The Spanish Castle, which was the name of the uh, dance hall, became one of the biggest dance halls in the U.S. over the next 40 years. What an idiot. was visited by famous bands from all over the world. Um, and Brian, uh, Frank's son, said it was a constant, like, salt in the wound for his grandparents. I bet Dixie at Midnight played there, too. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Dixie's Midnight Runner or That's whatever. whatever they're called. Whatever. <laughs> I got the two important words, Dixie and Midnight. Everybody... <laughs> I said but the I two think it's Dexy. words. Everybody knows what I'm talking about, Hannah. The one-hit wonders. Yeah. Nobody needs to know their name. They need to know the one song that they put out. And boy, they, do they know it by now. <laughs> uh, so following that catastrophic ending, uh, Frank's parents started drinking more. Mm-hmm. The gas station went bankrupt, and they lost everything. And his mom was also pregnant with another kid. Because so. he... Came in, Eileen. Oh my God! Oh, why? Yes. Come on. <laughs> that was a good one. That'll be the last Eileen joke. I swear, that's the last Eileen joke of this episode. Of um, okay. Thanks for clarifying. It's gone too far. I've, I've been allowed too much freedom, and I took advantage. That one shot of whiskey has really done wonders. <laughs> uh. So yeah. So they're in a bad situation. They move in with relatives until FH gets another sales job, and they move out to a, a little beach house. Uh, sister Patricia Liu was- I feel like in, in today's relevancies, like, FH was the the guy who, like, like he's a hipster. He, he doesn't actually do a job, and people are like, what do you do for a living? And no matter what he's doing, he's like, oh, I'm in between jobs right now. Or he, like, he, rattles off a long list of things that, that he does that he on. doesn't Yeah, finish. but he's like, oh, I got this project in the works. I got this dance hall that's going on. He's me. He, I'm, well, I'm FH. you're a way better version of FH. Sure, I guess. Except if, if someone comes up to me at a barbecue and is like, hey, Tyler, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, well, you know, during the day <laughs> – I'm an electrician, but at nighttime, oh, like that's, I feel like that's exactly what FH is like. I got this, I got this dance hall that I, uh, idea that I got going, dude. As soon as that takes off, I don't have to be a salesman anymore. You know, 
you know, I've I've got to figure it figured out. He's the less successful alcoholic version of you then. I'm okay. Yeah, I'll I'll take I that. I think you're objectively more successful than than Frank <laughs> than Herbert's F-H. dad. Well, as long as I can say I'm more successful than Frank Herbert's dad, I'm I'm happy with that. <laughs> I'm not Perfect. Ernest Hemingway and I'm better than than Frank Herbert's dad. But will you be as good as Frank Herbert? I Read on, Probably dear not. listeners. This dude is, he, he's 10 years old. He's already a better <laughs> person than I am. Yeah, actually, he's done more by age 10 than yeah. I have. I'm going to row my boat out there and write a book. <laughs> um. So, yeah, so now he's like 13 years old. He's got this younger sister, these shit show parents. Uh, and he's off doing his own shit all the time. So he's out fishing one day and meets Indian Henry, which apparently is... This, like, 40-year-old dude who's just living on the lamb out there. Not okay with that name, but okay. <laughs> uh, so he becomes a mentor to him over the next couple of years, teaches him all sorts of cool shit, like how to catch fish with your feet, how to identify edible and medicinal plants, hunting tricks, and more. Uh, so much so that, like, Frank would take home food all the time for his family because his parents were losers. And I think one of the, like, neighbors or businessmen, like, he was trying to figure out how this little kid was catching so much fish and it was some sort of trap that um, Henry had taught him how to make. And so he like showed the dude how to make it. And then he turned it into like a profitable thing and started selling it and like what? totally ripped off this poor kid. Gosh, darn it, y'all. <sighs> Damn it. Don't trust anyone, Frank. Uh, at 14, he saved enough money for a typewriter. Um, and he, he, so he approached everything sort of like a math problem almost. He would mm-hmm. buy boxes of books analyze them and try to replicate the formula that the stories were written in yeah um at 17 he did that with westerns he read all of these books and like um serials so like serials confuse me because we don't really do them anymore but it's like longer than a magazine article but shorter than a book it's like installments of a story um, so so it's re- like short stories that you collect together to tell. Yeah, it's like actual one story, but split up into a lot of. I think a, I think a lot of Lovecraft stuff was like that too. That would make sense. I think he did a lot of magazines, but I think he also did serials as well. Yeah, it, they were a big thing back in the 1900s. I, I've noticed them come up a lot in a back lot of the authors the 1900s, that we talked about. Not anymore. Like a, Twenty years ago in the 1900s. So at 17, uh, he wrote his own Western story under a pseudonym and it actually sold to this company that did uh, both magazines and paperbacks. Nice. Uh, so he got this like initial burst of success. And in the next few weeks, he wrote two dozen more stories all using the same formula and none of them sold. He got all these rejection letters, was super sad. What? And wouldn't sell another story for eight more years. That's nuts, though. That's crazy. Was it just that they were like, this is uninspired now? I mean, they probably, there's something to be said for like, yeah, it's cool to figure out the formula and do it. Yeah. But at some point, like people want original stuff. So maybe that was his problem. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes there's just not a market for it. Yeah. I think that, I think that that's very indicative of, of how we do stuff today. Uh, I mean, you look at YouTubers and, and TikTokers and people who produce music and it's, it is a formula. It's a process. You can type into YouTube how to, and, and they will list off all these crazy formulas of how to do things. Um, and so uh, I think it's a really important lesson to learn. Um, and, and it's why I have a hard time watching YouTubers who talked about how to write a book. Because mm. to me, writing a book, while you can get like good ideas from people and, and tips and tricks, the idea of like you have to write a book like this 
it's like no everybody does it differently right everybody has a different process so um i think that it's important for him to be starting you know he he is trying and he's trying to replicate the formula but then he learns oh maybe it maybe it doesn't work like that Uh, i'm also uh you see uh kind of the the same thing you know with uh neil gaiman right we talked about this a, a year ago with neil gaiman where he he approached writing in the most logical creative way possible his creative process is logic um and so I, it's it's interesting to me that you know we see another writer who's prolific like this and he approaches it analytically yeah because that's something i feel like people don't think about authors they always tend and creative types in general you yeah. tend to think of them as like scatterbrained and yeah. all of that stuff um but i mean a lot of them a lot of especially science fiction writers i feel like do have that very technical mindset very analytical most science fiction writers are are non-credentialed scientists at the end of the day <laughs> yeah, right you know like you look at uh, arthur c Clarke and um uh isaac asimov you know these are people who not only did they write stories but they introduced technology that is so believable that people have created it because they read it in this book that's insane i don't know i'm a weirdo no i i think you're spot on with that analysis you're also a weirdo but that's neither here nor that so oh that was fun frank's going through more personal drama of course because his parents are absolutely awful uh toward the end of high school he got so tired of their drinking and their neglect of his five-year-old sister that he dropped all his classes and ran away from home taking patricia lou with him they took a bus down to salem oregon hey i've been there we've been there and stayed with an aunt uh patricia ended up going back home because i guess his parents got their shit together for a little bit Hmm. but frank stayed and enrolled at salem high hey i've been there before uh, graduated in 1939 with no immediate plans for college. So he didn't really know what he was doing. But he was always That's, good at school. That sounds like whoever – did you did you write graduate with no immediate plans for college? Or was that in this book? He said no immediate plans for college. And, I mean, he goes to college later on. Spoiler alert. Uh, so it's it not just like, sounds It just sounds like – Somebody who's very smart and should go to college but doesn't want to go to college, it sounds like their way of saying, like, at a family get-together, like, oh, Frank, are you going to college next year? He's like, I got no immediate plans. Well, he was really smart. Yeah. But didn't, like, he dropped a lot of classes, didn't go to school a lot because of his shitty home situation. So, good good student, but bad at actually doing the student part. But doing it, yeah. Um. So he moved to San Pedro, California, where his parents and sister were living at that point and started working at the Glendale Star as a copy editor. He actually had to lie and said that he was older than he was to get that job because uh, I actually this goes great to your point. He looked and acted older than he was. So it was easy to lie because he like smoked a like really fancy pipe and stuff and mm. convinced the editor that he was older. And so, yeah. uh, Frank, what uh what makes you think that you're uh you're good enough for this job? Well I did run my boat two hundred miles yesterday. So uh, you know Wow, you must be at least fifty five years old. <laughs> Actually I'm seventeen <laughs> Exactly. Um 
1940, he moved back to Salem and uh, approached the Oregon Statesman for a job, which I think is now the Statesman Journal, maybe? Um, that newspaper does not exist with that name anymore. Uh, the personnel manager said they didn't have any jobs. He doesn't take no for an answer, apparently. So he found out who the managing editor was, went to his house, mm-hmm. and talked to him personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, editor was annoyed at first. Uh, yeah, but obviously. Frank is apparently good at talking to people. Asked if he could uh, fill in when other reporters, editors, or photographers were have on vacation. Have you seen him? He's got a scar over his right eye. Of course he's charismatic. Okay, you're either charismatic or terrifying. Like Both are forms of charisma. <laughs> one's intimidation, one's persuasion. It's a D&D thing. <laughs> so he just obviously had high charisma and high rolled charisma. pretty well on his persuasion check. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after that. Move. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the editor fell for the charisma, I guess. Nice. Uh, Frank did all of the jobs that he filled in on so well that he eventually got a full-time position. Mm-hmm. He spent 14 months there, which is a pretty long time at any one place in his and his family's career history. Um, and he also took advantage of the great outdoors and really fell in love with the Pacific Northwest, like, natural areas uh yeah it's yeah. the best it is the best he went skiing in the cascades fishing in the three sisters wilderness area just did all the cool shit and he also met his future wife uh so it was 1941 he met her she was like still a teenager he's like <gasps> 21 at this point kind of gross frank like whatever teenager teenager hopefully, or like, like 18 teenager. it didn't say how old hopefully like 17 or 18 17 still bad. Still it's breaking the, 40s. the law. Still breaking the law. I don't think it was against the law back in the oh, 40s. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fine. Let's go back to when it was okay. That's literally what we're doing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so he met Flora Parkinson, and in June, so they met in the spring. In June, they drove to Tacoma and got married in a courthouse by a judge who was handling police court. So there were like a bunch of people there for like DUI and stuff in the audience. Yeah, of course. Naturally. Uh, in the fall, Flora was pregnant. Good Lord, they move fast. They move so fast. And they move back to Can, Hold on, Hannah. Let's just slow this. Let's not rush things like they did. <laughs> let's slow this down. Let's take a moment and think about this. Let me ask you a question. You meet someone today. Mm-hmm. And in six months, you're pregnant with their child and married to them. Not, not something I would do. No judgment if that's something... Our listeners are into little judgment, little judgment for me. All right, little judgment. We live in a world where people can live to be eighty-nine years old. Take one damn year to get to know somebody. If That's your relationship, your time frame. if your relationship cannot withstand one year of not fucking, you probably shouldn't be with them. Oh, I didn't know that's where we were going. I'm I thought you saying, meant just use a condom. I'm just saying, all right, fine. Let's don't let's get married. Be, let's be more progressive than Ty Ty the Bible <laughs> guy wants you to be. I'm not and sure he, what birth control in the 40s was like, but it probably wasn't great. <laughs> it was like probably some steel contraption that he has to put <laughs> yeah. on. No, I, I'm just saying, just slow down a little bit. I'm with you on that part. I think uh, getting married after like one or two months, which is basically what, what they, they did. What they did. That's a little cray cray. Just. Yeah. Winter term for college goes until March. At best, they met in April. That's when spring starts. If they're married by June, that's two full months of knowing people. Two. Well. I've known people for two months and don't remember their name. 
I'm not going to say that you have a point here, but a little later on in this story, you may feel vindicated. <laughs> oh, I, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. Can I, do I get to take a guess? You can guess. They're going to get divorced. Whoa. No way. <laughs> no way. I didn't even look at your freaking outline. I just, I know they're going to get a divorce. Well, yes, this, uh, this shotgun wedding that wasn't even a shotgun wedding did not bode well for them. Um, Stupid shit. And, you know, here in the early 1940s, a little something else is going on in the world called World War II. Oh, wait. (laughs) That is the 80s, sir. (laughs) You are way ahead of uh, this time. No, World War II. Uh, so in 1942, Frank registered for the draft. Uh, around the same time, his daughter, Penelope Eileen, was born. I'm not going to make the joke. I already promised you. Penelope Eileen was born. In July, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy because he didn't want to wait around anymore. Uh, but his Navy job wasn't, like, that exciting, considering we were in, like, one of the most famous wars of history. Uh, he was just, just, quote, unquote, uh, a photographer for a naval shipyard in Virginia. Mm. And uh, one of the funny stories that's going to become very ironic soon is that one guy in his outfit had a girlfriend back home and one day got a Dear John letter from her and she asked him to return her photo. And this highlights Frank's sense of humor because he collected dozens of photos of other guys' girlfriends and then told the heartbroken man to write that he was disappointed to get her letter but couldn't remember which girl she was. (gasps) Will you please pick out the one of you and send the rest of the photos back? Oh, no! Burn! Baller move! (laughs) Oh, my God, that's so good! That is so good. It was hilarious. Could you imagine? That's the best way. That's one of the best stories I think I've ever heard in my life as far as, like, breaking up with someone who's just like a dick he's serving and you're gonna fucking break up with him ah oh, you're a nah. yep ah, i love that that was a cool move dude that was great and i think there's a lot of stories like that from frank's life but i thought that was a funny one i can't remember which one you were can you just send back the rest to take, take yours ah it's so good uh but in the winter of 1942 frank got his own dear john letter from flora uh no way yeah she she was breaking up with him because. Sorry, which wife are you? <laughs> which wife? <laughs> Can you send back? The Can rest? you send back the kid too? Uh, and then because he was so distracted all the time over his heartbreak, he uh, did the super baller move of tripping over a tent tied down, hit his head, and got a blood clot on top of his skull. Oh goodness! So his uncle, who had uh, military history, helped him get an honorable discharge less than eight months after he enlisted. Oh, all right. Well. So his his navy. Uh, career was very short so he showed up took some pictures helped a dude through a bad breakup got broken up with himself and then conked his head and left i think the the helping the dude who got broken up with was the best thing he did while he was in the navy that was how he served his country that's why god put him on this earth not for dune not to serve our country to help that one guy pull the greatest breakup move ever ever yep (laughs) <laughs> uh, so now out of the Navy, he goes home and finds out Flora has taken off and took baby Penny with her. Oh, and so he's like distraught looking around. Her family wouldn't tell him where they went. Like, I don't know if there was some weird stuff going on in their relationship, but that seems very weird to me that her parents were just like, out of nowhere to just be like, yeah. nope, fuck you. And it's like, like we're not going to tell you where your child is. Yeah. Super rude. Oh, I'm sorry. I just went to go serve our country. <laughs> By taking pictures 
and yep. helping people break up with their girlfriends. <laughs> Just leave it at serve our country, Frank. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, basically, Flora ended up getting custody of Penny, and that was that for their relationship. He never got to see Penny again? He did, but Brian didn't really explain how. Like, Penny would just show up sometimes. Like, Flora would send her to go hang out with her dad for a while. Flora was also always so suing it, him for back child support. And it's like, dude, you left him. Like, so maybe there was still just... communication. It wasn't, hey, this is cut off. You're never going to see this child. You're never going to see me again. There I don't think still... he saw Penny for a long time. Man. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what it was. You know something had to happen. Something he went down. He had to say something or do something fucked up. Well, maybe he wasn't. A... Or maybe she was just insane. They were both very young, too. That, too. And had known each other for, like, six months. But there was no proof that he, like, cheated on her or anything, right? I did not see it. But, again, son wrote the book. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he's covering up his, his father's infidelities. Although, as you alluded to, uh, he wasn't the best father for them either. So, yeah. so why would there's he cover some tension. Yeah. Um, so, back to his writing career. Uh, he spent two years copy editing at the Oregon Journal in Portland. Um, hey, I've been there. Yeah, we've been there. <clears throat> the stability of that job really allowed him to start writing like fiction again. Uh, and in 1945, he sh- sold a short suspense story to Esquire. So this is basically the first thing he sold since his one-hit wonder at age so this, 17. This is 25 years old. Yeah, about 25. He's 25, and he's and he sold his first real short story. Yeah, and one of the things um, about that story that would really come to define a lot of his writing was his ability to write about places he had never been. So the story he sold to Esquire was set during World War II and described a U.S. Army sergeant who was sent to the Arctic of uh, Alaska to find a Japanese radio weather station. The sergeant and his guide, who was an Eskimo, were captured, but the Eskimo knew the soldier's gun would freeze in the sub-zero Arctic, so he was able to overpower him. Nice. Um, So even though he'd never been there, obviously, he wrote really convincingly from his research, other stories, and just his imagination, which is something that comes up again and again in his writing. You're on track. I'm on track. Woo! I mean, you're a little behind, but you're mostly on track. I'm mostly on track. And I'm, I'm... Interrupting you a lot, but they're short interruptions, so we're doing great. This is also an interruption. I f- I feel inclined to point out. Uh, yeah, I'm interrupting you to tell you how good I am at not interrupting you that much. Perfect, listeners. Please send feedback to Tyler on his interrupting <laughs> skills. If you want to tell me about how good I interrupt people, please send postage to. <laughs> we're not that old. <laughs> so in August of that year, he moved on to work at the rewrite desk of the Seattle Post Intelligencer. Um, uh, and very cool sounding place. Yeah, right. It sounds like a detective newspaper, but I don't think that's what it was. Yeah, <laughs> or like name, national security. My name is Frank Herbert Jr. Frank Herbert the Third, <laughs> and I'm an investigator for the Seattle Post Intelligencer. I've got this scar on my right eye, and I can row a boat 200 miles round trip. And I've written several books since the age of seven years old. <laughs> That's his resume. That's all. He walks into a room and that's what he does. I'd hire him. Every job he wants. So using the GI Bill, he enrolls at University of Washington. Boo. Uh, But while he was there. Way to alienate a bunch of our (laughs) listeners, maybe. I mean, for anybody who knows University of Washington, I went to Washington State. Arch rivals. Huck the Fuskies. That's all I'm going to say. Wow. While he's there, he meets Beverly Forbes in an English class. They were the only students who had sold anything, which was kind of cool. She was a writer, too. She wrote more, like, romance stuff, girly girly stuff. I feel like he didn't really take it seriously. Nobody does. Nobody does. 
Um, she, so <laughs> she invited him to a play, Macbeth, where she was playing one of the witches. They made plans to go out afterward, and while she was changing out of her costume, Frank walked his friend Howie Hansen to the bus stop, and Howie told him, Frank, you're going to marry that girl. And Frank laughed. Uh, that's not how he said it. He said something like that. No, he said say like, it. Say it with an accent. Come on. Give us a good I'm accent. I'm not going to do uh, Dude, Come on. Frank, you're going to marry that girl. That wasn't even an accent. What was that? Dude, no, do it. Come on, Frankie. Ah, you're <laughs> going to marry that girl. Where do you think Howie Hansen is from? It doesn't matter. Give him an accent. Make it exciting for the listeners, Hannah. I'm not going to give him an accent. Hey, Frankie. You're going to marry that girl? This is such an ethnically inappropriate <laughs> accent. What are you talking about? That it's... was like some Irish or like Italian stuff going on there. Listen to me, Frank. You're going to marry that girl, huh? Huh? Well, uh, much like I'm doing, Frank <laughs> laughed at that. But two weeks later, he called Howie and asked if he would be his best man. Two <laughs> fucking weeks? Two weeks later. I think they'd been, like, flirting before that, but, you know. And then, much like his uh, other marriage, they got married in June. June's a great month for weddings. Uh, Frank dropped out of college. This guy pisses me off. Uh, he made super awesome honeymoon plans that involved him working as a fire watcher on top of a mountain in the Snoqualmie National Forest for the whole summer on the condition after. that he could take Beverly with him. Yep, two months after they met. Yep. Yep. So uh, they hiked up that mountain and uh, they hung out in a fire watch cabin or whatever and wrote short stories and also conceived their son, nah, Brian. No, no, no way. They're going to write and fuck for, for um, a summer. For a whole summer. <laughs> Um. So yeah. So are, they're gonna get divorced, aren't they? They're not gonna get divorced. Shh. Are you messing with me? I'm not. This is a great love story. Is it? It is a story of sacrifice and love and adventure. All right. All right. I'm back in it. I'm back <laughs> in it. Frankie, you're gonna marry that girl. So you know, nine months later, uh, they brought baby Brian home. It was a year to the day after they trekked up the mountain to the firewatch cabin. So he was born at like the end of June. They brought him home on 4th of July. Nice. You're welcome, America. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, Frank ended up working for several papers and diehard fans. I'm sorry if I don't get every single career change and location. Mo- How he- could you miss his his stint as an editor for the Milwaukee uh, Pioneer <laughs> Elevator article? I'm naming Magazine. my newspaper the Milwaukee Pioneer Elevator. I think that sounds <laughs> sick. But no, he's sort of like Hemingway in that he bounces around from like city to city to city, except they're all on the West Coast and not like the world. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty common, right? For a lot of writers, they just they don't like to hold down one job. They like to write where they get. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I feel like that's just a thing. I've like, lived mostly in the same place for my entire life, so yeah. this is weird to me. Um. But yeah, at one point, uh, Bev's mom gave them a property on Vashon Island, which is like up by the San Juans. Uh, and Frank started building a house, but they ran out of money and the house and land got repossessed. So he's kind of repeating his father's oh, no. uh, lifestyle in a way, but he seems to have it together more. So that's why it surprises me every time they run out of money. Gotcha. Uh, 1949, he takes a job with the Santa Rosa Press Democrat and they move back down to California. Um, he has a lot of influential friendships over his life, so... Sorry if I can't go into detail about all of them, but one of them is with um, a couple named the Slatteries, and the wife in that one had fled 
Nazi Germany and um, really informed Frank's opinions about the danger of heroes and loyal followers. Um, and that's something that would go into his stories about, you know, intergalactic politics or whatever. Yeah. Um, and around this time, he started Under Pressure, which um, was going to be a novel about extreme psychological stress on a nuclear submarine. Mm-hmm. Again, never been on a submarine, but he starts writing about this. Um, it takes a while. So in the meantime, uh, in June of 1959, they have a second son, Bruce. Uh, 1951. What you did said I say? 59. Uh, 1951. Yeah, I didn't skip ahead a decade. Uh, so they have a second son. And one of the things, Tyler, that you had alluded to, Frank was, for all of his like great qualities and charisma he was not good with kids Mm. he was really impatient he thought they were noisy and obnoxious which is true but he was really impatient with them yeah um and that's part of the reason his sons had kind of a strained relationship he was always quick to yell at them he was the kind of dad who would like flip out if he told them to do something and they said like i'll try he would like be like no you're not gonna try you're gonna flip and do it so he would get like really angry it's sad because uh i I grew up with a dad like that. I mean, my if mom my would say that, but she wouldn't, like, scream it. If my, if my dad said, hey, I need you to take out the trash, and I was like, yeah, I'll try and get that done, he'd be he'd be pissed. He would lose his shit on me. Like, no, I told you to do it. You're going to go fucking do it. Like, like that's how it was. So I kind of get it. Your dad is Frank Herbert then. (laughs) But no, he was like especially like high strung when he was writing. Like Brian would talk about how like if they got home and he was writing, they basically had to tiptoe around the house, like not make a sound. I mean, uh, that uh, that seems a bit extreme. But I I mean, I live in a basement underneath children uh, and I know how loud they are. I know how loud children can be. Uh, I was I I get it 100 (laughs) percent at the same time. Like they're fucking loud. They are loud. Um, so the next year, he takes on an additional part-time job as a news radio announcer. Um, oh, and there was this other great prank story. God, he's... Oh, she's opening up a folder. Because I forgot to... to l- I didn't, like, transcribe it for this part. Um, so, this note look for is brought to you by... Right. <laughs> I don't remember what the earlier sponsor joke was. I can't remember what. Uh, well, so he... Um, had this engineer who would work with him at the the radio station, and the engineer would play lots of pranks, like leaving a wet sponge on the announcer's chair, or like sneaking <laughs> pictures of naked women into the copy they were supposed to read, which is like that could never happen in 2020. No, so, no. If if somebody put a picture of a naked lady in someone's script at the TV station I work for, they would be fired on the spot. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> This is like nineteen hundreds humor. The difference humor. is though, like, um, that's like digital. Like you have to, <laughs> you have to embed that into in the, the script, prompter, right? This is like he just takes a picture and throws it on. Like throws you have a notebook right in front of you that you flip the page and oh, there's a naked lady picture, and then you go, oh, that's hilarious, and then you just throw it in the trash. Yep. Nobody gets triggered nope, because there weren't knows. any women working there anyway. So yeah. the ladies couldn't get all butthurt about it. Even if it was today, even if you had a partnership with someone where like it's just you two in the studio booth and you have a physical notebook that they're going through and then someone puts a naked picture in the copy, you would get over it. You'd be like, oh, ha, that's dumb, you dumbass. And then you throw it away and nobody would get triggered. I know what I'm going to find in my notes next week. Oh, don't tempt me. 
Um, so Frank kind of had it with all of the pranks. So to get back at the engineer, uh, one day he started reading the news as if there was a problem with the transmitter. So he would read normally and then he would just stop and just mouth the words and then he would start reading again normally. So it seemed like it was cutting in and out. The engineer was like freaking out thinking he had to rebuild the whole thing. And then Frank was like, okay, what would you give for, for the transmitter to not be broken? And the engineer was like anything. And Frank was like, I was just pranking you. Never prank me again. Oh, See, he's a great dude. Yeah. A real bruh. Yeah, a bra, dude. <laughs> so his time living in Sonoma County, California, was a treasure trove for future works, but he didn't actually write much fiction while there. He was working on the one novel. Um, two things got published of note. A short story, Looking for Something, um, went into the 1952 edition of Startling Stories, which was like one of those periodicals. Um, and it was about a world that was actually an illusion created by a hypnotist, which sounds like a sick plot line. Sounds like Black Mirror. It does. Or like Twilight Zone or uh, just an older yeah. version of Black Mirror. Yeah. Um, and then he also wrote Survival and the Atom, which was like a collection of articles he had written about nuclear energy because, of course, he knows everything. Um, <laughs> and that's mostly relevant because later he would become an anti-nuclear and anti-war activist. Yeah. So he's just on all of the things. Um, he also developed a friendship with sci-fi writer Jack Vance. Um, Vance was like Vance Refrigerations. Yeah, right. He was around the same age as Herbert, but like farther in his career. He was actually um, like getting stuff published regularly, and he wrote a um, like he wrote episodes of some TV show that was on. Um, so he was doing pretty well career wise. So the the families got really close, and in September 1953, they decided, hey, we're gonna go to Mexico together. And just, just the two of them? No, the whole family. Oh, okay. So they packed everybody up, and uh, you know I'm looking. You know I'm looking. Yeah. No. They okay. took their wives. Just saying. They took their wives and kids. A couple of pals heading to, <laughs> heading to Mexico. Mexico together. Um, so while they were there, Frank and Jack plotted many stories together, but they never actually wrote anything together. Um, they were also working on their separate stories, but sales weren't coming through. Neither of them were having great luck. Uh, while in Mexico, he had two accidental drug experiences. What? Which apparently played into his writing later on. Uh, One yeah. of them was uh, someone like gave him cookies that had a lot of hash in them. Oh, really? He was tripping. Um, and then another time was a friend gave him tea that he just drank, and it turned out to be morning glory seed tea, okay. which I guess like knocked him on his ass, and he woke up the next day. Oh, really? That yeah. sounds like a good time. A good sleep, maybe. Yeah. That's what I mean. I legitimately that's what i understood what you meant <laughs> and that's what i You're like meant. i need some of that tea <laughs> i need a nap hard hard you need to wake up tomorrow when it's sunny out except it's november so it'll never be sunny out again <laughs> <laughs> um by the end of the year their money was running out so they went back to california and uh frank's money was really out so they lived with the vances for a little while <laughs> uh spring of 1954 he got a speechwriting job for Guy Corden, who was a U.S. senator from Oregon. Hey. Uh, so this was an important career move because it launched him into like elite Washington, D.C. circles where he got to look at the inner workings of politics. Mm. Um, they had to like move very quickly because I guess his previous speechwriter like quit earlier than expected. So they got the whole family up to Portland. Uh, Frank was there for one day to help his wife and kids find a house. And then he jetted off to Washington, D.C. to work with the senator before the primary. Damn. 
Um, one of the things was he was a really good speechwriter. Hmm. He did extensive research, often on topics that would come in handy later for him, like on Tidelands Oil, Submerged Lands Act, uh, grazing on national forest lands, a lot of environmental stuff. Um, and his work like got a lot of compliments from other people too. And the um, senator he was working for was friends with like Truman, I think. Okay. Yeah, he had some story of like walking into his office one day and just like a former president was sitting with his feet up on the desk. He's like, "Oh, cool. Here's what your do you speech." What I say there, <laughs> Right. I don't know why that's. That's like your newspaper person. accent. I don't it's know. It's my that's... 1940s everybody. Everybody. Accent. <laughs> what do you say there, Herbert? You want to write a script for me? Want to write a speech for me? Uh, so after the primary, he goes back to Portland. Um, despite his busy schedule, because he's still doing speeches, um, the election's coming up in November. This is really good timing for this episode. Yeah, it is. Um, but despite his busy speech writing schedule, he also found time to write science fiction again. And he got several short stories published that year. So he was doing all right. Uh, Corden, the senator, ended up losing in an extremely close race. So then he was out of a job after that. Wow. Yep. How interesting. An extremely an close extremely race. An extremely close race, you say, where it looked one way. Election and then night, it went the other way. and then it went the other way. Oh, and Corden was a Republican, so oh snap! Whew. And a writer didn't have time to write and was very busy. That's me. I, I'm <laughs> like that. That's how I am. All of this is so relevant right now, <laughs> and so is the next part because uh, Frank was very sour on politics, as Brian uh, wrote. Uh, so he set out to finish the submarine novel. Uh, he rented a cabin in Washington, which was supposed to be like a you know short term thing, and then turned into a semi long term thing. They were super poor. Uh, I think Brian said he and his brother were sleeping on, like, basically toboggans that had blankets on them. That was their bed. Oh, wow. Uh, Beverly had all these different methods for choosing which bill to pay. Like, uh, she would throw them into the air, and whichever ones landed face up, that was the bill she was going to pay because they didn't have money for all of them. Oh, wow. Or she'd, like, draw them out of a hat. Uh. Which is not, like, a great way to choose which no, bills to pay. not at all. That's not a fiscal way. That is luck and uh, <laughs> probably the worst way you could do it. The worst way. Um, and then at some point, a friend, an unnamed friend, which, Brian, why are you holding out on us? But a friend sent peyote to what? Frank to help him with his writer's block. Because apparently that's a thing. Uh, that was his third drug experience, the only intentional one, per his son and the biography. And uh, I guess... The experience, he like, he heard colors or whatever. He was having all this, this crazy stuff going on and it would end up inspiring the vision echo in Dune. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I've never done peyote if that's what you were going to ask. Do I need to start doing drugs? No. Is is that what I need to do in order to be a good writer? I don't think so because he did drugs three times. Uh Uh-huh. Two times were accidents. Yeah. And after peyote, he was like, never again. But- do I need to do peyote once? <laughs> <laughs> well, now is the time since it's uh, decriminalized in Oregon. Yeah. So. Well, is pe- peyote decriminalized? Everything I know that we is. just got rid of cybocillin, uh, like, so, whatever. Fuck. I don't. Fucking Sorry, know. I did a lot of stories I'm on sure it, you so did. I had to learn how to pronounce psilocybin. Psilocybin, <laughs> cybocillin. Um, like that. Now that's becoming like a thing where you can get it medically here in Oregon. Yeah, in like two years. Yeah. Well, it's becoming. Yeah. Do I need to do some psilocybin? You want to do psilocybin? Psilocybin? I, just, uh, yeah. Do I need to microdose? 
I, can, I am not I'm just a, saying things that I've heard. I'm on not the a news. doctor. I can't give you any advice, but sure. Hannah, I need you to tell me whether I can or cannot do this. And if it goes badly, it will reflect on you. I mean, I don't think you'll die. So just give it a try. Hmm. All right, everybody. That's how I approach Next everything. Next episode, I'm going to get toasted. Well, we're going to have some special tea over here. And then here. we're going to talk about Dune, which is actually really, really poignant for that book to get toasted as shit. See? It'll be perfect. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to get, by the way, just listeners, just so you know, I'm I'm not going to do that. I think they thought you were. Okay, we got to <laughs> get going. So Why? <laughs> we only have three more pages. Jesus, you no, really we, interrupted. Me. No, we're getting close. We have, we have um, like a page, So he gets a super boring job doing promotions for a plywood association. After that, his family moves how into. Does he, how does he lose his job as a as a speechwriter? You don't write speechwriters for candidates that lose, or you, you don't write speeches for but candidates you can, that lose. You can still like write speeches for people. Well, you'd have to find somebody. It's like if someone loses, their campaign manager seems has like to a, go find seems a new like job. A bad career move to, to go work for someone who might not have a job in a year it's the risk you take all right uh so he gets a boring job they move into a house that overlooks the tide flats in tacoma and tacoma i'm not sure how it smells now but apparently back then it smelled really bad there was a lot of pollution in that there water uh there water. which would again influence his environmentalism uh so he was like really really trying to get under pressure the submarine novel done uh, finally mailed off the 75,000 word book to his agent Lurton Blazingame, which is like the most pretentious name I've ever heard. The name uh, Lurton Blazingame. Uh, and let me just take this moment to say that Beverly was a goddamn hero. Oh, you even wrote that. I did. Because I don't want her to go underappreciated in all of this. Oh, so remember. Why don't we do an episode on her? Back in college when they met. Yeah. She had dreamed of being a professional writer. Yeah. She, she had even sold stuff. She had even sold something just like him. Yeah. But she married Frank, so she sacrificed her writing and took on other jobs outside of the home at a time when most women didn't work outside the home. Um, and she did it because she loved him and because she always said that Frank had more talent than her. Uh, and as Brian would write, he wasn't happy unless he was writing. So Frank got to be the writer and Beverly had to go do other jobs. So- we can get real distracted here. We're not gonna. But we could. You consider that a hero? I consider her a hero. Yeah? If not a hero, she's at least deeply unselfish. Because I don't think I would do that. I hope nobody is listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are. And you know how fucked you are now. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I all right. Let's let me let me start with this. Yes, good move on her part. I don't think hero is the right <laughs> word. That's just me in my opinion. Uh, if you want to consider that move a hero move, then that is that is all up for you to to grab. Um, I just I see that as being a, a good wife, and I don't mean that in a fifties style. Be a good wife. Well, this is the fifties. <laughs> provide dinner for your husband at six p.m. shop, and don't. Look bad for him. You want to, like that's bullshit. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is being a good partner, and um and supporter for your spouse, um because like for me in in my relationship I do sixty percent of the work, always. 
I always do 60% of the work. The hope being that my wife also does 60% of the work. That's not how math works. But it does. Because if we both try to do 60% of the work, then at some point one of us doesn't have to do that much work. And so it's about taking on taking on the, the parts of your spouse that um, complement each other and um, where they're lacking. That's why partnerships work. And like I see that be as I, I wouldn't say hero, but I would say that is genuinely a good wife, someone who is a great partner. Um, and I and I think that I would I hope that, you know, like my wife would see me um, and not feel like she has to do that. Right. Like, I hope that I encourage her in her writing enough that she can do whatever she wants. Um, but she knows there there are things about me that she has to compensate for. When I get tired and hungry, I'm an asshole. I'm a fucking asshole. I'm a bear. And she knows it. There's literally, I'm not joking. There has literally been a day where I came home from work and I needed to take a nap. And I was so cranky and angry. I yelled at my wife. I took off my shirt and rubbed my back on the wall because my back itched. And then I took a nap and I woke up and she gave me a sandwich. And then I was perfectly fine. You know what else? Has that exact same mentality? A, a bear. bear. <laughs> so I I'm enjoying I'm enjoying watching them work with each other. Um I they got married way too soon, so they had no idea of the sort of consequences <laughs> that would come with that partnership. But I like that she is a good partner who who does compensate for her husband's um lackings. And boy she did. But we'll get to that. <laughs> oh, there's more? <laughs> so, yeah, we got to go fast, man. So within Why two weeks we of sending... Because we're approaching an hour. Within two weeks of sending off under pressure, he got an offer to serialize it. Um, But his agent also wanted it sold in book form. So they went to Doubleday. And so they got both deals and he got a lot of money. Oh, uh, he paid off his old debts and back child support to Flora. And then in September 1955, and he sent pictures uh, back to her, probably uh, of yeah. many kids, and being like, "I don't remember which one." <laughs> which one? Can you send back the ones that aren't her? Yeah, send Penny when you get a chance. Yeah. <laughs> so the family takes off from Mexico again because Frank seemed to get this thing in his head that he was going to do great writing when he was abroad, and that never ended up panning out. But he still tried. He's trying to do it the Hemingway. Yeah, the Hemingway way. Um, so he spends his days writing. The kids are just like chilling un unparented uh, and at first they were not accepted by the villagers uh like the the kids weren't allowed to play with the the herbert children uh they like stole parts off of their car which was also a hearse which was super cool i think but whatever um <coughs> until one day frank helped a man who had really bad gangrene on his hand like he was gonna die and frank was like yo let's clean that shit off and get you some antibiotics and he saved the dude's life and then the villagers <laughs> were like oh you guys can come to our parties we'll play with your kids blah 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 and they left them all and right fr while frank was there he also translated sections of u.s department of agriculture books that he got during his time in dc into spanish and distributed them to farmers and somehow he managed to finish a second novel in this time uh but book and serial publishers alike shot it down. So he left Mexico in early 1956. Randomly brought a friend from the village with them. What? He was like, oh, you want to come to America? I'll help you get citizenship. 
Um, and with that story, Brian describes his dad as impulsive and childlike. Like he just makes these decisions with no concept of how difficult it might actually be to do something like that. Um, but he was the kind of person who would do anything no for way. his friends. The guy that got married twice after knowing his significant other for two months each time is impulsive and childlike and doesn't understand the repercussions of the choices that he makes in life. Ding, ding, ding. So they land back in Portland. <laughs> He's having more struggles getting things published. He ends up working on a couple more political campaigns and every candidate he worked for lost, which uh, is bad luck or also the fact that he was working for Republicans in Oregon. I don't know. Ooh, yeah, It's the 1950s, move, though, so like Republicans were different in Oregon then. I like losing. <laughs> Maybe he did. He just wanted more time for writing. Um in 1957, Universal bought the screen rights to The Dragon in the Sea, which was what Doubleday changed his submarine novel's title to. They were like, it's a under pressure name. is lame. Yeah, Dragon in the Sea. It's a way cooler name. Uh, so he got some money and Spoon it doon ran doon right doon 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 out. Doon doon doon. Spoon doon 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 pressure. Before moving back to Washington again, though, something important happened. Oh. Frank heard from one of his U.S. Department of Agriculture friends about a research station near Florence, Oregon, which was in an area of unstable sand dunes. <gasps> Researchers were planting grasses as a way to try to stabilize the dunes. Um, and Frank was just totally fascinated. He knew from his studies of like history and stuff that the Sahara and other deserts had not always been desolate, but that they were eventually buried by slow-moving sand. So he thought he might write an article on this project that they were doing. So he chartered a plane and flew out there taking notes and photos and stuff. And it was like a really moving experience for him. And then he goes, moves back to Washington so his wife can do a job and make some money for them. He starts an article called They Stopped the Moving Sands. When he was writing it, he realized he had way more in front of him than just a magazine piece. And he started like this spiral of creative thinking, envisioning the earth without technology to stop encroaching sand dunes until the entire planet became a desert. So he really started diving into research after that. And around the same time, he also reunited with his friend Howie, the one who told him he was going to marry Beverly. Hey, and was right. it's me, Howie! <laughs> and the two spent a lot of time discussing religion. Uh, Howie also brought an environmentalism to the discussion because he had just returned to his reservation in La Push for the first time after almost oh, 20 he's years. Native American? Yeah, that's why your accent's really dumb. I mean, it's not dumb. You said <laughs> earlier it was like culturally inappropriate. Well, he's Native Indian, Americans, not Native Americans Italian. can be from New York. Well, they can, but he's Quileute from the reservation in La Push. Maybe his parents were from <laughs> New York. And they moved to the reservation, and that's Howie talks. Eh? You've written a very compelling backstory for Howie. I don't think it's accurate. Howie, the Italian Native <laughs> American. So he had just gone back to the reservation for the first time after almost 20 years and had been, like, appalled at the damage done to the environment. So Brian's recalling this conversation that his dad and Howie were having, wherein Howie told Frank, they're going to turn this whole planet into a wasteland just like North Africa. And Frank answered, yeah, like a big dune. <gasps> so by this point, Frank basically has... And at that point, his head went back and ethereal <laughs> light protruded from his eyes and his mouth. And then a book was born. <laughs> and it just came out of his mouth dune <laughs> unfortunately for frank that's not how it went oh. he had all of the elements of the story in his brain but he didn't actually start writing it so they move again 
So Beverly can get a lucrative job as an ad manager in Stockton. Mm -hmm. Frank's like floundering at this point because he has this great idea for a story in his head, but it's just too intimidating, damn it. Mm. So he's writing other things, not getting any of them published, uh, and he's almost 40 at this point. So he feels like life is just passing him by. Oh man! Yeah, don't I'm, don't look too deeply into I that. No, I'm st- I'm starting to really feel some shit right now because uh, you're describing me right now. I, you're not almost forty. You got time. I'm thirty-one years old. I'm closer to forty than I am twenty. That is true. <laughs> I am also now closer to thirty than twenty. So no, you're not. I'm closer to thirty. Oh, thirty. Okay. So that was a weird moment for me. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that uh, Brian wrote that I thought was poignant was his book about the desert was almost becoming too massive to envision finishing. To do it right, he wanted to create a universe and several cultures, uh, a formidable, disheartening task that was uh, bogging him down in the tedium of research. Just everything I read about this process reminds me of you, Tyler. Yeah, it's it's hitting. It's getting yeah. hard. I'm holding back, so we well, can keep moving. Yeah. So uh, the next year, Bev gets an even better job in San Francisco. They move up there. He becomes a night photo editor at the San Francisco Examiner, but he spends his mornings researching and writing. He read more than 200 books, according to this biography. Uh, he studied Asian and Arabic languages to the point that he could actually like write and understand them. Uh, absolutely consumed with research. He also did a little bit better on the publishing front, sold six um, science fiction stories from 1960 to 62, still wasn't earning a lot of money, um, but it did keep him in the writing community and many famous and soon to be famous writers would visit their house like Isaac Asimov, like you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was still in the community and making those connections. In late late 1960 he still hadn't started writing the story so this is like a couple years after he first got the idea yeah he's been researching this whole time yeah one of the main things he did was he fired his agent oh shit because he felt like um his agent kept telling him that the stuff he was writing wasn't going to sell which was true because it wasn't the right format for like the serials and stuff uh that was being published right then he wasn't wrong but I think Frank really wanted to be able to pursue the story he wanted to write yeah. without that kind of logical voice telling him it wasn't going to work. So then he really gets into writing it. And I think where we're going to stop this episode is Brian, uh, one of his memories as a child was hearing his father reading to Beverly one night about a boy named Paul Atreides mm-hmm. who was forced to place his hand inside a box while an old woman held a poison needle to his neck. Brian didn't know it at the time, but that would end up being the opening chapter of Dune. Hell yeah. Legitimate ghost goosebumps right now. Yeah. That's badass. That is badass. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk about Dune so much. But, okay, do we have time for me? And I don't know we if you've time for mentioned this on the show it's before. It's an hour and six minutes in. We usually go an hour and a half. So this was reminding me of you so much because I remember when you started reading Dune, you were talking about how it was almost depressing for you because it was yeah. so good. Yeah. And you were like, I can never write something this good. I didn't say that. Well, you were saying <laughs> what you were working on right then yeah. was not going to be that good. And you wanted like whatever you wrote to be that good. After reading this and realizing how long it took him to write this and research it and how many failed books and everything he had before that gotta stop comparing yourself to to frank herbert man no i 100 (laughs) percent will continue and that's what i'm going to talk about in the next episode 
because this this opens my eyes even further to the struggle that I'm having, this existential crisis in my writing career as a writer. I'm not writing well enough to tell the story that I want to tell. He dealt with the exact same thing. And that's what I'm going to talk about next episode. We'll talk about as that. we go into his later life, uh, having written Dune and, and everything else that comes out of that. Uh, we're probably, I, I will probably have a lot more to say because I'm, I'm going through that right now. I'm going through it. Um, especially, uh, because I'm, doing national novel writing month and i've had to make a big choice in my writing as i do that this this uh event um so i'm gonna keep comparing myself that's how you get better that's what he he wrote he read 200 books in this time frame about how to speak arabic and not, all of that stuff not only how to speak arabic right Just it was two, primarily research he yeah, said that 200 still, books for research for dune what do you think that this podcast is like the whole point of this show is for me to expose myself to new writers and and learn what they did and what they went through and how they implemented things. I'm just doing research. I'm just making you do most of the actual work <laughs> while I sit back and I take in all those cool dollar bills. Yeah, that we where don't are your two hundred books, Tyler? <laughs> uh well let's see. Uh we've been doing this for a year. So now. we've probably got like Every other 50 week, some. every other week we did a new author. I'd read at least one book. So that right there is is twenty five, almost thirty books. Sometimes I read a couple of books for each author. So I'm on. I'm at. I'm at like. I'm. I'm gonna say right now. I'm at like 35, 40 books. I'm a quarter of the way there. Yeah, yeah. So. I think that's our teaser for the next episode. So, uh, Tyler, where can they find us? They can find us on uh, the Google Drive document that is our <laughs> out. Oh, <laughs> so I'll just say ready. where you can find us. You can email us at lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com. You can find us on facebook.com slash lewisandlovecraft, Instagram at lewisandlovecraft, and if you just want to go to our website, see some old photos that we took like a year and a half ago, lewisandlovecraft.com. I love that you said that. It makes me so happy <laughs> that you said that. Uh, special thanks to our our uh, producer of music, Jake Basson, for writing and producing our intro music, as well as to Cameron for remixing it for all of our, con- our contrivance, our <laughs> correspondence episodes. Contrivance, too. Go check those out. Um, you can check out his work at soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson, B-A-S-S-E-N. And as always, we want to remind you to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes of our regular show or Correspondence, yeah. uh, which comes out on alternating weeks. Uh, some really cool discussions there. You, so, you've been getting some some big names. I'm like legitimately jealous of some of the people you get to talk to. You do some cool ones too. Uh, the mean, most yeah. recent one I did was um, with these guys who are creating a horror anthology which was like great timing because i talked to them right after we had our halloween episode so that was fun so subscribe so you don't miss an episode yeah absolutely um make sure you go and rate and review us on itunes um or wherever you're listening to our podcast if there's the opportunity to do that uh that way people can can get to know us a little bit through somebody else's eyes um we still have we still haven't gotten a new um a new uh, review since like April. Rude. Guys, seriously, please. Please, someone please. go start an iTunes account so you can review us. Just review us real quick. 
Um, but Tyler, in all seriousness, what is the best way they can help us? Oh, the best way they the can help us, Hannah? The single best way. The best way, Hannah, is to tell a friend. Tell a friend. I want you to take your friend out on a 200-mile rowboat trip <laughs> and just smoke a pipe and be like, no, we're going to listen to you tonight. We're going to listen to Tweetless <laughs> Or just tell them about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they get back from the San Juan, hopefully y'all make it back. Yeah. They can listen to the show. No, I got no reference. All right. Well, then remember that fear is the mind killer. And it shall pass through me, and it shall be behind me, and I shall look behind myself, and then I shall see nothing behind me but the fear that is gone. I don't think I said it right. I was like, you said it confidently, though, so. Yeah, it's something to that effect. That was the quote. Something like that. <laughs>